Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island where it has broadcast continuously for over 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show is also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my New York Cat Film Festival of which I am the founder and director along with the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which premiere in New York City every October and then travel the USA and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com to find out when we'll be where. What a lovely book has landed in my lap. Lisa Erickson wrote to me and said, I wonder if you'd be interested in my book, No Ordinary Cats for your show. And usually when people ask me that, I think, well, I don't know. I don't want to make you feel bad if it's not good, because I can only have you on if it's good. Boy, was I relieved. It's really good. It's wonderful. It's unique. It's absolutely charming and delightful. Lisa, welcome to the show. And thank you for getting in touch with me. It's quite rare to find books about cats, or in this case, books by cats. And it's just a, a, what you've written is a wonderful addition to feline literature, I think we can call it. When you set out to write it, you were already had been an English teacher your whole life. Had you harbored fantasies about being a, a writer yourself? Well, I think part of the occupational hazard of being an English teacher is that we are all, you know, uh, latent writers. I had done some writing uh, through high school, through university, but I think for many of us, COVID sort of brought to the forefront, what can we sort of do to keep our brains from going to mush while we're all trapped at home? So I think the genesis for the story um, was given a little bit of a boost because of COVID. Because you were just home and your brain was worrying, trying to find, trying to find something to do with itself. 
Yeah, exactly. And the story was inspired by the passing of one of my beloved cats, Chairman Meow. And I found that in order to make sense of not only his passing, but some sort of, you know, interesting and cool things that had happened in his life, I found I needed to write about it. And then after I had finished writing about Chairman's story, I realized that all of the other cats who had owned me over the last three decades had interesting stories and they all deserved a voice too. Well, voice is the word for it because this is not Lisa writing about cats. This is the cats speaking through Lisa. And this book reminded me in some ways of Watership Down, which is such a fabulous book about a, a whole, uh, I, I guess, a, a community of, of rabbits, right? And mm -hmm. it, it was a long, long time ago, but I think a classic. And this book also is is so extraordinary at capturing the way cats might think and talk and communicate with each other without being cute, without being cutesy, without being adorbs. And yet you capture these different personalities and the way they see the world. Did you ever take notes throughout their lives? Or when you sat down to write about them, did they start to speak through you rather than you describing them? Yeah, I had never actually taken notes uh, regarding anything specific that had happened to them, but both uh, my boys and myself always had interactions with the cats from as long as uh, we can remember. And when Max first came to live at our place, uh, my older son Nick was only a little over a year old, so he grew up with cats around. And then when his younger brother Brian was born, he also had cats around. So I think between the three of us, we could remember quite a few different things that had happened to them. And then I also imagined a few different things that could happen to them at different points as well. So my aim was to meld what I knew had happened with what I could imagine had happened. And it's been really delightful to have readers tell me, I can't tell where the join comes in. That's, well, yes, there's that. But it's also, it's all in the cat's voices. You're not telling the story at all. And I wonder, are you the kind of cat family where you speak for your cats when they're around? Like, you know what I mean? The people that the cats come in the room and one person in the human family will say, Chairman Meow wants to know when dinner is. I mean, did you do something like that? Because, but you don't, do you know what I mean? I mean, all, all of us yeah. are very goofy that way. We each have our own absurdly loving ways of trying to imagine what our pets are thinking and what they'd be saying or oh never mind that's okay you can pat the other one it'll be my turn soon but th the book really delves into their whole experience of being cats Oh, for certain. And when you go back to mention about their voice, yeah, I think all animal owners tend to, you know, vocalize what they think their pets are thinking. And my boys and I were no different. We would, um, you know, look at one of the cats and feel, oh, well, you've been really slighted today. No one's petted you near enough. And then give that one a little extra dose of attention. So I think we all tend to try and funnel our pets' voices. I think so, except for in this case, it is third person. I mean, you, you say, you know, Chuck arrives at a point where humans played. But the description really seems to come from an animal point of view, which I, I really love. There's a lot about children in it, the little humans, the small humans, and the idea that animals perceive them differently and experience them differently, which I think is really true. Do you think that 
partly came from raising your boys with cats? Oh, for sure. And especially for Max, because she just never seemed to be able to find the people who she really connected with. Um, she lived with my mom in a city before she came down to live with us. And she just never really seemed to come into her own until she had small children to play with. And it's always amazed me how especially older, sometimes grumpy cats will take quite kindly to small children, cuddling them, lugging them around, exploring their fur with a little bit more, you know, strength than maybe needs to happen <laughs> and understand that these small people, um, you know, have no animosity toward them at all. Don't have any ill intentions toward them. And that's the part of the unfolding relationship between uh, the cats and my boys that I really wanted to expand upon too. It's interesting because it's quite the opposite of kind of common practice, if you will, around cats. When I was writing the Cat Bible, one of the things that I wound up gleaning from research and commentary, behaviorists, was to actually say, don't let little children pick up a cat. They do it unevenly, The half the cat's falling, and the cat not only could be uncomfortable, but then might scratch the child accidentally. The meow parlor which is in New York City, which is a cat cafe, which was the beneficiary of the New York Cat Film Festival this year, they have a rule, no children. So it's interesting that you, as a cat lover and owner, came up with a very different point of view about it. I mean, quite the opposite. So I feel chagrined. Maybe I've been giving bad advice. Oh, no, no, not at all. And, you know, I'm maybe generalizing here as well, too. Another generalization I could be throwing out here, too, is regarding perhaps farm children and their pets. Oh. And, you know, you're having perhaps more daily interactions with them. And I think also farm children have an earlier understanding perhaps than city kids yes. that bad things can happen to your pets that small kittens can crawl up underneath a warm engine, that a puppy not paying attention can get, you know, backed into by right. a teenager also not paying attention. So I think there's some life lessons perhaps that farm kids uh, glean in terms of referencing with their pets than perhaps city kids do. So as an English teacher, now you set out to write this book in a, in a kind of unwelcoming publishing atmosphere, unwelcoming, that is, to all of us, like, you know, now how do you get people to read your book and like your book? It's not a book written for children, but could happily be read by or read to children. Have you, you're in Canada, do you have a, a program whereby you can go to schools and to libraries and read and, and give little little visits, because that's what a lot of uh, American children's book authors do. And as I say, this isn't a book for any age person. But is that something that is done in Canada? Absolutely. And falling back again on my educational background, yes. one of the things that I loved most to do and that I missed most after retired was reading to students. Even my senior high school students would get read to on a regular basis. So no this, has given me an, this has given me an opportunity to get back into the classroom and do what I love best, talking to students about their pets before I tell them about the pets that are important to me. We do a little bit of a book reading. I also have pictures of all of the cats, characters in the story. So we talk about them and we do a little bit of a book reading. And then there's also a little writer's workshop um, assignment that goes along with it wow. as well, too. Where 
ask the students to put yourself in the paws or the claws or the hoofs or the fins of an animal that you know really well because you are going to put yourself in that animal's position and tell me about adventures that that animal could have during the course of the day. What sort of problems could it encounter? What sort of antagonists could it come up against? And I was always really super thrilled with how excited the kids were to delve into that sort of idea. So it's just another thing that, you know, can sort of spark creative writing, things that you're interested in. We all tend to write better about things we're interested in. Very good point. But I love that you've made it into an, a big visit, a big educational visit. I think it's something that everybody can benefit from. And the whole idea of empathy. I mean, I think that's what I like the most about the book is that you really do put yourself inside the fur of these cats and you empathize with their ups and downs. They're just daily things about being cold or having, you know, getting the flu, if you will, or not mm -hmm. having enough food or not feeling like eating or the human comes out with the dry food and, oh, good, here's the wet food. It, it, just the idea of what it is from their point of view to kind of get down on all fours. I think that that kind of empathy makes for better pet guardians, owners, appreciators, to see things from the perspective of the animal. Did did any of these kids or people of whatever age write anything good enough that you thought, ooh, I could collect a bunch of these? <laughs> uh, yeah, some of them were actually really, really good. Um, I had one student who sort of took me off guard a little bit because when we were talking about pets that were important to them, told me about um, the calf that he had helped to raise. And the ultimate aim of beef cattle here in Canada and across the U.S. as well, too, well, we know what the ultimate aim yes. is and where it's going to end up. And the story that uh, he had written was really very heartbreaking because he had talked about how much he enjoyed working with this calf, how prepping fit for a 4-H show. And uh, even though he knew at the end of that sale that that calf was going to ultimately end up on someone's dinner plate, that didn't stop him from investing the time, the energy, the thoughts, the emotion, the care into making that animal the best it could be. Wow, that's a bit chilling. I mean, in a good way, chilling kind of gives you goosebumps. Mm -hmm. Well, I think any sort of relationship that a kid can have with an animal, and again, this may be, again be a bit of a generalization, but if it's at all possible, I think children should have the opportunity to care for a pet, whether it's a little fish, a turtle, whatever yes. you are able to have, because it teaches them so many lessons. And I think by extension, if you learn to be careful with an animal, if you learn to take care of its emotional needs, its physical needs, by extension, that can also go out toward the relationships with other people. Definitely. But as you say, farm kids are different because of the daily realities that animals die of illness or they get out of an enclosure and die in some tragic way that way, or they get eaten. I mean, that is the end product of some farming. Mm -hmm. And so they can, it's interesting that they can both love and invest themselves in an animal, even knowing that in the end, that animal's going to die. And, you know, you hope for a humane death. But it's interesting that they're willing to put out, or at least this one person was who wrote the, the article for you, the piece for you, willing to put out their own emotion 
and put themselves on the line knowing that all this animal has is one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And the animal is fortunate to not know that there's going to be a day that will be his last. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, I might be generalizing again, but perhaps farm kids as well, too, come to an earlier understanding of the concept of euthanasia. And on a farm, sometimes euthanasia means exactly what you think it does. It doesn't always mean being able to find a vet available in our very rural area. Mm -hmm. A euthanasia means a short trip with a long gun. And that, again, is maybe something that farm kids can wrap their heads around perhaps more easily than city kids. Well, I mean, yes, and that's that's quite a that's quite a phrase. Is it one that's in in common usage in in the farm world? A short walk uh, with a long gun. It sounds like short, the title of something. Yeah, doesn't it? Sounds like it could be a western. Somewhere. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And then and then there's the showdown at high noon. Yeah, it, but but I don't want to give any miss um, a miss sense of no ordinary cats because this is all just charming. It's so delightful. It's like you're, it's almost like going to live amongst these cats and just be a fly on the wall and just, you know, have your ear to the ground and you get to listen to what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're saying. And tragic things happen, like when the the neighboring herding dogs kill them, which I guess really must have happened to you. It did, yeah. Which must have been so horrible for you. I felt terrible for you. But I thought... Well, that could be a reality. You know, people do the best they can, and the, those kitties wound up in jeopardy. But it's part of the, the drama of their lives for farm animals. There's the good days, there's the bad days, and there's the last days. And, mm-hmm. and, and in your book, I think you really show such love and appreciation of cats that that's what comes out first and foremost. Lisa... We're out of time, but I really thank you for getting in touch. I know a lot of cat lovers are going to gobble this book up. It's really yummy. And for others, it's just a great look in behind the scenes of what cats might be thinking and feeling and doing. So thank you for the effort you've put out. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you today, Tracy. It's much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed the show. There were a few more special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, and the hybrid dry food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaraner Maisie will eat. The show is also brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients to gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. My dogs love it every single day.